0: 9cents. Nine 9cents Nine is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It is November 15th, and I'm being joined today by Witch Zaftig How are you, my dear?
1: I'm quite well. How are you?
0: <laughs> I like how you look at me and you smile and you say that. That's so wonderful. <laughs> it's like we haven't been like sitting here chatting for a while. Um, uh, I, I'm great. Thank you for asking. We do have a wonderful show for you listeners. We're going to start off with the Nine cents Letters addressing uh, paganism and Satanism, really around the context of opponents to Satanism. Uh, From one of you listeners, thank you for sending that in. Uh, I figured since we have Witch Zafdig on, who better to help me address this than Mm -hmm. her? Uh, We're going to do, of course, a little unorthodoxy with Witch Zafdig. What's this one called?
1: This one is called Religion and the Academy. Mm. Essentially, I'm going to give the audience, the listeners, a little bit of insight into um, the institution of academia and how it relates to the study of religion, uh, because we are often asked as scholars of religion, what are you going to do with that? So um, this, this particular segment is kind of meant to address a little bit of this type of question and what it is we're actually doing um, with, when we study religion. What is, it's such a broad way to approach it. What is it that scholars are doing, spending all this time and energy and uh, money on, and losing their mind, and going into great depressions, and <laughs> going broke. Like, why? Why would that be? Why would that be appealing to anyone at all, unless they were a severe masochist? So today, we're going to talk about masochists in the academy. I have a theory. Oh, <laughs> do you? Yeah, yeah.
0: You want to hear my theory? Yes. So the reason why you guys go through so much is you're expecting to be able to take over the world with your mass of knowledge. I think, I think it worked pretty well in the, the, the Middle Ages, sort of keep, keep all the intelligence for yourself and leave us yeah. dummies out in dry, work in the fields. I think you're trying to do that again.
1: Maybe. And the thing is, in, for much of uh, most of Western history, it was always the elites that had access to this mass amount of knowledge. And that has shifted and actually it's changed the academy. And we'll talk a little bit about that. So it's not just people who are wealthy and who can afford to spend their days studying. <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. Uh, the demographic of university graduates has shifted drastically in the past few decades. And that has also then shifted what we study it, itself, the content itself.
0: Interesting. All right. <laughs> Well, uh, at, immediately after that, we're gonna close out the show with an Agent Provocateur. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned for that. It's gonna be awesome. Let's go ahead. Well, actually, you know, what? I got a couple things I wanna I wanna chat about before we dive in head first here. Um, I am like sitting here unshowered and filthy and gross. So um, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, it's a good thing we don't have like smell mics because my breath would be really gross because I haven't brushed my teeth yet this morning. Uh, and I'm telling you all this because I'm a little bit unprepared. So this may be a bit of a scattered episode. I spent this weekend ripping carpet out from our house because it's, I live in a really, really old house and we've slowly been, you know, sort of one project at a time fixing it up. Um, this weekend was carpets, and so I'm looking down at my floor as if you guys could see what I'm talking about. But we have like these wood floors that would be nice, except the former owners just like splashed paint all around them, apparently. They mm. just had fun. We have huge, what look like massive blood stains. Ew. Like. <laughs> pools of and we were told after we had moved in uh, the neighbors came over and told us that a couple people have died in this house and oh. like one of them just offed himself and so seeing the evidence that the supposed evidence of this like stained through the carpets into the floor is um it's uh, colorful it's, it's a little so you see so-
1: you uh, and the blood stains are in the office the room you're sitting in right now some of forward. them
0: the majority so. of them are my son's room don't tell him
1: okay I well won't, i won't say where it is
0: out <laughs> <laughs> it's bad i mean they look like someone laid there dead for hours and then dragged them out because there's, like, a line of... I'm hoping yeah. it's not, like, animal feces because it would be really bad if that were... I almost prefer the dead body to the animal feces. Yeah. But, um, yeah, like, all the floors are completely tore up, so we have to either re like, sand them down, re-wax them and everything, or just bite the bullet and put new wood floor on top because we wanted the wood floors. I don't know what we're going to do yet. Um, But right now, it's just this... So it's more ambient. You're going to hear this probably in the recording. Uh, There's no more nasty, disgusting carpet. And, like, here's the other part of it. Like, part of the reason we did it... One, the carpets weren't that great anyway. But rather than replacing carpets is I have, like crazy allergies and asthma and so like all of the dirt and dust that was captured and we we uh, there was like a layer of dirt Mm -hmm. like underneath the mats and everything it was so gross how do people live like this i just don't understand the worst part is i've been living in it up until now not knowing what was under there And it was just—it was a nightmare. It was horrible. I I
1: hate carpets for very similar reasons. The asthma, just they're they're just germ factories. Um, But I wanted to mention something about you being a way better parent than I would potentially be. I have no children, but like when you talk about your son's room, like my first thought was, how sadistic would I be to my kids, like wanting to like freak them out just a little bit? Hey, you know somebody died in your room, (laughs) and then like late at night making little tapping noises on the. I mean, I know it would fuck them up. Like, I I probably wouldn't do it, but on some level, I kind of want to. You know what I mean? I kind of want to be like... (laughs) Wait till you're 18, and then I'm going to (laughs) like...
2: Yeah, it's on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, then it's on. Before that, they could damage them permanently. At least at 18, Mm -hmm. they're just going to be mad for a few months, maybe.
0: (laughs) What's been really weird about the entire experience in this house is that... um, He, when we first moved in for months, would wake up freaking out calling out saying there's a man in my room there's a man in my room he's standing in my closet there's a man in my room and so there's a history of him experiencing these really weird things and we you know <laughs> we've, we've let him know that it's all in his head it's not real right. it's, it's totally made up uh, and then we uncover this <laughs> massive right. crime yeah. scene and I'm just like oh shit <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh shit
3: <laughs> so yeah maybe
1: don't tell him then don't, don't just... be a bitch parent like I would be <laughs> Maybe, maybe that's a smart move. You Little wife, scratches yeah. on the door at like Actually, one in the morning. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think you, you and your wife made the the good call there to not fuck up your children. I think. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, good on you. <laughs> we try. We succeed here and fail in other places. So um, yeah, so that's that's a big problem. And then seemingly just to make my life much worse, I like Windows 10 just had like a recent update that was supposed to be like this huge update for people who have been working with Windows 10, um, and knowing nothing about it, I just did it, and it effectively broke my my uh my usb network uh card my wireless card so i spent a good 20 minutes trying to get that and i just literally barely finished fixing it as soon as we got on so yeah. uh, I'm, i don't have any notes i like nothing's really put together so this should be a really uh, interesting show <laughs> completely unprepared show so um,
1: we're winging it, that's alright yeah, cool. it'll be good,
0: it'll be really good yep. I, if people really knew how much improv went into the creation of this show, <laughs> like on a regular basis I think they would be stunned because we plan very little over here I mean, contributors do a great job I don't all right, so let's try improv with this nonsense letters
1: okay
0: Though I am an active member, I do not speak for the Church of Satan. Hi, folks. You discussed in your latest podcast the question of who are the greatest opposers to Satanism right now. I agree with you that the Satanic equivalent of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster is a great obstacle to Satanism today. But from my personal experience, I would say that another significant obstacle to Satanism is the contemporary pagan movement. Paganism today is the most... I can't even speak... For the most part, very egalitarian, and I uh, see I that <laughs> I just can't speak to it. I, I, I barely finished my coffee. Uh, as a response to the satanic panic, is and as an institution, automatically opposed to Satanism. Of course, the pedestrian Satanism that conflates Satanism with the Illuminati, hidden signs and symbols in music and movies and pedophilia among world leaders, celebrities, etc., is also a challenge to the definition of Satanism, but that's an entirely different discussion. Speaking as a former traveler of the right hand path, I can testify that the animus amongst pagans for Satanists is as strong or possibly stronger than among Christians. Like it or not, the contemporary pagan movement is very active online, deeply inter connected, vocal, and is defining Satanism as a pejorative. In a new, I'm a new listener to the 9Sense podcast, so I don't know if you folks already covered it, but a segment exploring the relationship between contemporary paganism and Satanism would be fascinating. So, um, I am I have to admit, I'm completely ignorant to online paganism. Um,
1: well, uh, I think online paganism is a little bit uh, of a misnomer. Um, so essentially, the that the pagan movement, or neo pagan, depending on how you define it, is incredibly broad, and it's very difficult to pinpoint one particular type of group. But um, it's easy for our purposes to sort of talk about this uh, nature uh, loving, uh, usually fem- feminine, divine focused. Uh, egalitarian type of religion and call it uh, neo-paganism. But uh, there are many uh, sub-factions of this kind of broad umbrella term we're using for these um, multiple different types of uh, groups and individuals that practice uh, magic and um, very much have a, uh, what they self-define as uh, usually white magic. Uh, so, uh, to, and how they're defining white magic is actually in response, as the author notes, is response to ideas like the satanic panic, or even ideas that they are, uh, practicing Satanism themselves. So when they use the term Satanism, most neo-pagans oh, and or pagan, uh, some, the, the term is a bit cont- contested, so I'll use them interchangeably, but, uh, Essentially, they tend to define Satanism the way uh, theologians divide Satanism. So they're, they're reacting against the popular depiction of Satanists as um, satanic ritual abusers, killing babies in the forest somewhere for demonic powers, uh, <laughs> all that um, uh, wonderful stuff in pop culture that some people, or many people, still take as quite real and a prevalent threat. So in order to distinguish themselves from this type of accusation, they affirm, and they have since uh, the very beginning you, in, especially in the 1950s and sixties because they uh, began more or less around the same time as leve their mm-hmm. contemporaries um, have self defined as practicing white magic in response to the accusation of dark magic they have self defined as being egalitarian in response to the idea of uh, you know a brutal social darwinist type of accusations of the satanist so instead of and i have seen this and this is what the author is talking to i I certainly have seen it online and offline uh certain leaders within uh, neo-pagan communities when they are accused uh, by the media usually of being satanists or devil worshipers they or if there is a You know, some sort of crime or someone kills an animal, uh, they say that's not us, that's Satanists. So they sort of deflect um, their responsibility without um, uh, taking into account that the same accusation that they're being accused of, they are then just doing the same thing to Satanists. I I must, (laughs) right, yes, exactly, pay it forward. Uh, Although I would, um, there's two things to that. That is certainly the case. I have uh, absolutely seen uh, examples of this among prominent members and influential members, but that's not every case. They're just like a lot of other groups. There are always uh, other people who got interested in paganism because they were interested in uh, the occult and the arcane and magic and know fully well about LeVay's ideas and what it is and what it is not. They just tend not to be as, uh, as, as vocal, so, and they are likely more a minority. Where I um, sort of want to add a little bit of nuance is that uh, Satanism and neo-paganism, because they emerge as contemporaries, are both responding to very similar ideas. They're both sort of responses to um, the notion of a 1950s conservative Christian mainstream society. Um, Along with many other movements, the civil rights movements, uh, uh, second wave feminism, um, things happening in the 60s in this very turbulent um, socially um, type of uh, disruptive society in America, a lot of these things are a response to society sort of breaking wide open. Here was this conservative society, suddenly all these things shift, um, drastic changes, uh, and Neopaganism and then and Satanism then actually have a lot in common in that way because they're taking Christian narratives about uh, what is bad and magical and reinterpreting them as something positive. So there's where their points of contact. They're certainly in their foundational premises completely opposed because the foundational premise of most Neopaganism is um, the earth is alive, um, divine. Uh, humans are egalitarian, or should be the ideal, and they have an ideal for the world. Like there's an ideal of um, if we all paid respect to um, Mother Nature and how it works and lived in harmony with, as opposed to um, uh, in conflict with, the entire world would be better. So they have a an ideal of how the world would be work better for everyone if uh, they adopted these principles. And Satanism certainly can have that notion of living in harmony with nature, just not on the same divine premise, Hmm. uh, where ultimately our notion of nature is also cruel. So when we look at nature, we don't think it's this wonderful flowery thing. When we look at nature, we see, well, it's also vicious and brutal and cruel. It's wonderful and ecstatic and all these things, but nature isn't this... um, sort of ephemeral notion of that we sort of hold in as an ideal. It's, um, we try to look at it a bit more pragmatically. I think the danger, um, danger, I think the the, the issue with coming out against hard against neo-paganism is that the outside world makes very little distinction between the two, mm. right? <laughs> Hardly at all. Uh, and there is, um, And it is true that even though they tend to try to scapegoat Satanism, our best response would be to sort of respond, not as a, in turn with another scapegoat, but in turn of saying, that's not what we are. If you're fighting to be understood, so are we. Like that, that would be the more measured uh, response. And, um... I I do know that many Satanists like to define neopaganism as the new Christianity um because of its very egalitarian type of approaches I wouldn't go so far I I certainly think like a lot of religions there's points of contact for certain things but mm. um to me there is there is a, a quite a bit of a difference in that type of in in what they are uh why we wouldn't um I don't know. Con- constantly approach it, or constantly restate the differences. I'm. Uh, <laughs> that's sort of like like up to. you. I mean, I I don't have a, a full answer for that. I'm thinking that if there's there's only so much time you can do addressing detractors, mm-hmm. and as opposed to um, focusing on what you are, right? The the more time you spend really denouncing what you're not, you're, you're wasting a bit of time. You also have yeah. to measure that with larger amounts of stating what you actually are, as opposed to the sort of negative amount, which can be louder and can can bend someone's ear more, but then they still don't have quite an understanding of what you actually are. So to me, um, uh, I think our response is relatively measured in, in use of that.
0: Well, it's interesting because this this idea that Anyone would expect a different religion to completely understand your religion is, is is sort of silly to me. Like I don't go out exploring every fracture of neo paganism on the off chance that someone's going to associate me with them, and then I could be like, "Oh no, we're not like them. This is what they right. do." This is what... Unless you're a <laughs> re- you know study religions like someone on the show with me, then there's no reason to like. And and here's the other thing. I I do not. I think there there's this base uh, misunderstanding in the context of this letter, in that uh, opponents to Satanism that that construct. I do not think Christians are actively opposed to Satanists. I do not think that pagans in any of their fractured, you know, different denominational groups are directly opposed to Satanists. And if they are, they're doing a terrible job because (laughs) they're not even on the radar. The biggest detractors opponents to Satanists are pseudo Satanists because they're the ones that are like actually being seen in media and online. So, I I just, when you talk about Christian, I mean, Satanism is not a negative reaction to Christianity. I I do not see it as an opposing force to Christianity. It's not like there's this weird balanced scale, like Satanists are on one side and Christians are on the other. Or in the context of this uh, letter, pagans are on one side and Satanists are on the other. It's, It's just absurd, like... Constructed reality that I cannot agree with. I've right. never met a Christian that uh, looks at me would find out that I'm a Satanist and then like draws their sword or grabs right. their glove and smacks <laughs> me across the face. I challenge you know. There's
1: no the archangel Michael. Yeah. Yes.
0: Lucifer. Like that's that's a How? duality. That's a that's a, a a manufactured idea that in your head, not in reality you as in the author of this like this this opposition that you're experiencing it's either from a misunderstanding of satanism or which i mean you're new to the religion you say so maybe that's what it is or it's a misunderstanding of christianity because neither of them are have like a, a dartboard with the picture of the other on it and they're like
1: right most I don't know. The, and the, I think I think the author is correct of certain elements, but I don't think that's prevalent, prevalent as they seem to think. Here's one thing that the neo-pagan community, as broad and varied as it is, has done that's actually really quite phenomenal. I wouldn't say that they are accepted totally as a mainstream religion, but you can now go out into polite society and say that you're a neo-pagan or a Wiccan, and you won't be met with the same type of immediate... Um, you know, revulsion or fear—at yeah. least in more liberal areas of North America and Europe, yeah. right? You can you can openly live as a as a witch or a warlock in terms of neo paganism um, without too much conflict. I'm certain. I'm sure there are certain areas in um, the south of the United States where you yeah. could not do that. But they have, even in their various fractured factions, have. Openly lobbied to be accepted as uh, a, a non-threat, so th- that is something that uh, that is actually quite unusual in terms of the uh, Christian foundation of of you know the Western world. So that they they have mobilized enough to gain that kind of acceptance, and that's kind of an interesting thing to phenomenon um, because you can say that. I mean, I can't think of very many other magical groups that can. Uh, off the top of my head, I can say openly.
0: Do you, um, <laughs> do you think this is because it's such a broad category that you don't have to worry about, like, the minutiae of that individual group? All they have to really say is, oh, no, I'm pagan. I'm a pagan religion.
1: I think so. And I think because they're, even though they are broad, their main message is um, nature-loving, egalitarian mm. type of liberal, right? So when they when they associate with these other types of movements that people can understand, then they're not viewed as a threat. They may be viewed sometimes as silly or, you know, like these hippies, um, but they're they're, they're sort of broadly, they're not viewed as someone who's trying to destroy society. Even if there are radical factions of neo-paganism, like there's radical feminist factions that would absolutely want to destroy the patriarchy in every single way. um, But even then, they're not always viewed as... um, a imminent threat. They're not saying we're going to hurt your children. They're going to say we want all the rich white men to die. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> <Damn>. now. <laughs> Don't
0: want to meet them in a dark alley, jeez. <laughs> um no, yeah, and it's it's really interesting. Um I I've, I've never really looked at it as pagans being in active opposition or in any form a threat against Satanists I just don't I don't I don't see an enemy in that side and and maybe there are some serious groups as, you, as you've mentioned that that uh, are more aggressive than others uh, in that area but it I mean I just, I've never experienced it personally it's so far mm-hmm. out of my realm and my experience with pay like I I grew up uh, really loving the idea of the occult. I have had uh, I still have a lot of really good friends that I self-identify as as pagan, um mm-hmm. though their their ideas get more and more convoluted the older they get um about <laughs> you know what that means to them. But sure. it's uh it it it's so it's so non-structured, every individual pagan I've ever come yeah. in contact with, that I could never imagine like some sort of online movement because they're all so dramatically different and, and and even to each other, like they just don't see, I, I've never, here, here's an example. So this individual, I'm not gonna say her name, um, but she told me that she used to be a part of this sort of uh, magical coven. The problem is that all of the women were so uh, just, Opposed to each other being in any position of authority that they could never actually get together The guys were always trying to take control of all the women and and all the women were trying to get over on the other women and there was just no No semblance of structure in any way in this pagan coven And so she sort of broke away from it and did her own thing Which is what I see most pagans doing and so I just could never imagine like ever I did want to address this uh, this other idea that you had uh, mentioned sort of briefly in passing during the discussion is this idea of of living sort of uh, in peace and, and liberal uh, ideology amongst pagans. I've actually run across that in Satanists too, and it drives me crazy. Oh, yeah. I totally. hate... Yeah. No, first of all, let me just say, liberal ideas, I share a lot of them. Uh, I'm very much a social liberal, but I love, and in, in the same way you described just now with Zafdig how Satanists view nature, as in, not all peace and love and harmony, but also very cruel. That's how I want society to be. I don't mind fractions of society being, you know, holding hands and eyeing, do your thing, I don't care. But I don't want everyone to do that. That would be the worst world I could imagine. That would be the Christian (laughs) heaven. Why the fuck would I want to have my reality be the Christian heaven? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. And so when I run across Satanists like, how could you like having this hate group around? It adds color, motherfucker. Like that's why I need that color in my life. If I just don't, as a Satanist, why would anyone want to just hold hands with his fellow man and walk together? Like that's so weird to me. Go be a well, fucking pagan. I
1: I, I view it as slightly different terms. Um, to me, it's more <laughs> like uh, I don't view it as uh, adding color, but I do view it as um, um. If I were to, you know, become the queen of the world, um, I would like to change certain things that allowed mm. access for, um, uh, for drive and uh, intelligence and innovation, right? So, so if you have a society that um, claims that they reward those things, but if you're not born within a certain class or race, uh, you got to fight a hell of a lot harder for it. Uh, that's that's fine. I, that's the reality of the world. I'm more about what we're talking planet. about. Canada, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah.
0: Everyone knows how fascist knows Canada is.
1: <laughs> how fascist we are. Yeah. I, I, I think that I, I'm much more pragmatic in how I view mm-hmm. these kinds of things. It's not about, to me, add color, although it certainly can. But uh, to me, that's all different kinds. Like, So I have a lot of colleagues. I have some colleagues that are radical, out there, feminists in ways I would never agree with. I love them. I just... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because when they, you know, are looking at the world and wanting to rip it apart at the seams part of me really enjoys that kind of mm-hmm. um, passion I don't know I, even though I don't agree with many of the premises or the solutions yeah. I may agree with some of the premises like x is a problem I rarely agree with their proposed solution <laughs> because it's unpragmatic yeah. but I still kind of like the idea <laughs> <laughs> I'm like yeah rock on sure yeah. That's- Let's rip them out of their their privileged homes. Absolutely, absolutely not. But <laughs> but I it, I like hearing about it for some reason yeah. um, more well, than it, the it, hate groups, which seem to me uh, a little bit less. I don't know, less innovative. Is I, taking I
0: action of, that that boundary for you? In that, like radical hate groups, generally will take action when they come up with the crazy idea of. You know, doing something, Um, but there's certain groups like you know, radical feminists. I've never seen them like march and tear down like white men out of
1: their mansions. They Uh, they certainly can. Uh, It's not just about take action. I sometimes find the the uh, it's about the premise I agree with. So even if I don't agree with the solution, so I don't agree with the premise that um, all black people are somehow a separate type of human. Right. So if right. you're,
0: if yeah, it's insane. If you're
1: a racist, if you're a racialist, and you're part of these hate groups, and like the the melatonin level in skin somehow means that their entire human nature is different because that's how they're framing, So absurd. Right? So yeah. Insane. And I'm like, that's an absurd premise. Like no matter what, like I I don't even i don't even know how to get there like even even to take the intellectual leap like that's you know um whereas the premise of some radical feminists like if there's issues of of gender and um oppression then i then i at least can say okay i agree x is a problem like i i agree these things are a problem your solution is Mm. wrong so i like the groups whose premise i can kind of Um, agree with and I kind of like to see where they explore how far their solution would go so to me that's kind of exciting to to listen to that kind of thing Um, mobilization would be different because to me ultimately um, most solutions are not uh, pragmatic or functional in the long term anyway like yeah you could sure rip all the rich white men out of their homes and like stab them in the street not that they advocate specifically that but let's just say to me then that creates a vacuum that no one yet is ready to fill. And then you would just have another type of thing. So um, I'm about a pragmatic solution mm-hmm. more than the radical revolutionary violent <laughs> solution. <laughs> then I think, ah, you're just going to create a different type of ISIS, right? You're just going mm-hmm. to create a, a men's rights activist notion that where they, their, their response would be um, you know, violent and radical in turn. So it's, it's a different, you, you'd be creating monsters that um, I don't think you can handle. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's it's a really interesting discussion, and I'm really glad that uh, we got this letter because I never really thought of any of this before, and so it's <laughs> it's nice to it's nice to be able to address it when it's on other people's minds. I hope we answered your question as, as best we could. There was another paragraph at the very end of this letter, but it's a little bit more complex, and so we may try to roll it into a different episode at some other point. Um, how about we do a little unorthodoxy with
1: witchcrafting? Let's do it. All right.
4: Sir, I believe I've found something. What is it? Not sure, sir.
0: Alright, bring it up on the monitor. Computer, analyze.
2: Initializing anal. Analyzation. I mean, initializing analyzation. Those are two completely different things. Analyzation complete.
4: What is the age of the artifact?
2: It appears to be approximately 6,666 years old, precisely.
0: Approximately precisely, huh? What is its composition?
2: It appears to be made of two precious metals found only on the carbon-based planet named Terra-6 in System 6 of Galaxy 6, formerly known as Earth. The first is sterling silver, and the other is 14-karat gold.
0: Is there any record of a previous entry?
2: Affirmative. Record number 66 shows a similar artifact with a perfect match known as the Anton Leve sigiled Pendant.
0: What is its origin?
2: The origin is a place called I Satan... From a place. So sorry, you grammar Nazi. The origin is from a place called Isatonist, a company that produces the finest quality satanic jewelry in the known universe.
4: Computer, don't you
2: mean produced? Negative. Isatanist still exists to this day, sir.
0: How is that even possible?
2: Wow, you ask a lot of questions. Before the destruction of Terra 6, I-Satanist has expanded to all other Terra planets in order to survive. It is known that self-preservation is the highest law.
0: Yes, I'm fully aware of that. Take us to the nearest I-Satanist immediately.
2: Plotting course now.
1: Fascination is a binding, which comes from the spirit of the witch, through the eyes of him that is bewitched, entering fascination is a binding, now the instrument of fascination is the spirit, namely a certain pure lucid settlement, generated of the pure blood by the heat of the heart. On this month's segment of Unorthodoxy with Witch Zaftig, we're going to talk about religion and the academy the institution of studying religion, what it means to get higher advanced degrees and to be involved in the academic study of this broad topic and confusing topic of quote-unquote religion. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. So let me sort of begin uh, later, not at the beginning, but sort of right where I am right now. Um, Within uh, next weekend, I will be heading to Atlanta for a large conference. There's a conference, there's an organization called the American Academy of Religion or the AAR and they have an annual conference. This is an incredibly large conference and it can only be held um, in certain cities that can accommodate um, like 5,000 people if not more, um, uh, maybe even up to 10 (laughs) in terms of this particular um, a conference. So what's happening is scholars of religion, uh, internationally, but mostly from the West, um, you know, send in abstracts of a p- paper they want to present. And this, in the AAR conference, then um, in a series of hotels and conference rooms in the city over a five day period, presents more than um, 1000 events. Uh, so this year it's about 1200 particular events. Jeez. A panel is where... Um, I'm sitting on uh, one of them, is there a particular scholar comes in and presents their research for 20 minutes on a particular topic. And they are often grouped with um, like type of papers, something uh, relatively similar. You can also attend workshops. So I've attended uh, workshops of talking about what it means to study fringe and marginal religions in the academy. And that becomes more a bit of a roundtable discussions. So you'd have veteran scholars that have been in the field for 30 or 40 years, and newer scholars also contributing to um, ideas about challenges, how to address them, students... Um, Um, How to teach difficult topics, um, how to get jobs, how to uh, write a good CV, (laughs) how to do these types of things, Uh, or even notions of uh, method and theory. You can attend different seminars about uh, the particular way that you're approaching your particular topic. This sounds very broad and vague, but so for for this year's AAR conference, I thought I'd just bring up just three out of the thousands of of topics and events happening over this next weekend, Uh, three three topics that um, I thought maybe our listeners might get a bit of a kick out of and then I'll bring it into what it means because it will sound like basket weaving 101 to <laughs> the, the, the uneducated about what so here's one uh, name of a panel critical approaches to hip-hop and religion so <laughs> like why would this type of study be important sounds so bizarre to the outside person. Um, But when I read that, I was like, oh, that's a panel I want to... I'm like, totally. (laughs) So essentially, uh, for the most part the scholars on this particular panel there would be four or five of them um, would be ethnomusicologists uh, and or sociologists so they're looking at the theological sensibilities of hip hop against its racial and geographic dimensions so the musical roots of hip hop which would be um, from negro spirituals like the the hymns that slaves would sing um, you know when they were in the fields um, which had particular messages to folk, blues, jazz and then sort of morphs into hip hop in the modern day context So this, some of these papers on this panel are looking at how modern hip-hop is informed by anti-slavery hymns and tracing that, that link through via the music oh, yeah. and via the political uh, history of slavery. So it sounds bizarre at first, hip hop and religion. Yeah. but what they're doing is weaving in these broad threads in, you know, with one particular example in the contemporary context, just to give an idea That's um, awesome. Another one, religion and food. All right, like, oh. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, uh, one of the papers on this particular panel was um, the religious language of weight loss narratives. So like uh, a religious conversion of a new self, a better self, that even in the secular world, when you hear about uh, weight loss narratives, it's always this re-emergence. Oh, it was a dark period before when I was fat. But now I have found X cult pop solution, I am newborn. I have new <coughs> my My body has changed and so has my entire soul and being. So, so it fuses this Christian and secular narrative in ways that you would not expect. If you watch a weight loss commercial, you're not thinking, wow, that sounds like Christianity. But the scholar does. The scholar looks at that kind of narrative and says, the language they're using and the framing of it is a very typical Christian conversion narrative. Wow. Right? You could trace it back to Paul's conversion in the Acts of Paul, where he's on the road to Damascus, gets hit by a flash of light. He's no longer Saul, the Jewish Saul. He becomes the Christian Paul, right? So this narrative has echoes throughout Western culture, and this is but one example.
0: So Weight this is a cult.
1: Well, <laughs> uh, and some scholars would absolutely argue that they're selling a <laughs> Dream, right? They're selling yeah. this idea of, 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 or at least a lot of the weight loss fads, I don't know particularly about Weight wow. Watchers, but a lot of the fads are like, here's this, here's this miraculous cure. If you just take this one thing here, all your problems will be solved. Because they're also selling the idea that the fat itself is impeding you from living your life. You're, it's impeding you from having the job you want. It's stopping you from dating the people you want or fucking the people you want. It's, it's the fat is bad. Everybody hates fatties in Western culture. I, I can attest to this. <laughs> it's, it's just, it just doesn't stop me. Like, I decided long ago.
0: <laughs> you got game. I,
1: a conversion narrative. I'm going to do what I want when I want, and <laughs> care. Uh, but, so that's another type of talk. And the third one, um, which is also kind of interesting, uh, religion and science fiction. So an entire panel, that's uh, this particular panel, based on Lovecraftian presence in popular culture and its religious oh. narratives. So fandom that creates religious type of communities. People who follow the Cthulhu mythos, uh, to embrace oh. a mystical experience with the monstrous. What does it mean to explore humanity's inner and dark desires via monstrous science fiction and the religious narratives that, it, that, that, it, that have overtones? If you study Satanism, you have a very similar approach to that. You know, Satan as a via, uh, is a way, is a vehicle to explore mm-hmm. these ideas, and so does the Lovecraftian mythos. And that's why many people who are into the occult love Lovecraft, because whether or not Satan is mentioned at all, it's, it's irrelevant. The themes are, are there. The narratives of hum- humanity exploring their deepest, darkest fears is often present in horror films, uh, different types of science fiction, um, and dark types of narratives, because here's a way for us to safely um, look at these ideas yeah. uh, and you're more protected from the monstrous but you get to you get to examine them without being um, going mad although in Lovecraft a lot of people go mad so
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, that was the theme I thought of, of all of his stuff
1: yeah um, so what does all this mean these uh, really cool topics I hope to attend each and every one of these particular panels if I can mm. if I can swing it over my five-day period um, I will also be presenting uh, a paper and on a panel uh, in the uh, esotericism and uh, ritual group, and uh, different people on my panel will be talking about um, their particular uh, uh, occult and esoteric uh, type of topic. So, but let's back up. If you're going to get a PhD, um, a doctoral in the social sciences, I'm going to use religion as the example because I know it, but mm. most social sciences would be relatively the same. It takes about uh, 12 to 15 years uh, from undergrad to the master's degree to the doctoral oh. degree. Yeah, so by the time I finish my doctoral degree, I will be, have been in school, um, give or take, 15, 15 years. So when that's a, that's a huge investment. That's a massive investment in time and energy uh, and money with little dividend, like you, with no guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's why I say it's a bit masochistic because um, unlike in many European countries, Uh, students in north america are also working many of them full-time during this 15 years um where there are certain countries that if you're attending upper um, university you may have a part-time job maybe but the government may uh waive tuition or supply funding but so this notion of you being a working student is is a lot more prevalent in north america uh How that has actually shifted the academy itself is kind of interesting because if up until relatively recently, um, the 1970s, I would say, and like second wave feminism, which uh, saw an influx of women enter into university and then saw a lot more of non-white people enter university, whereas before it was mostly the most people who got educated were um, uh, wealthy or privileged type of uh, white males that had access, and sometimes <laughs> they even well, yeah. by bylaws by- 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 by themselves, <laughs> right, to prevent it. It also means that this influx of different types of perspectives have shifted how the academy studies religion itself. So before it was very much an elite Protestant view, because most universities um, from Europe uh, and then into the Americas were... Um, wealthy protestant males and their particular perspective on the world when they're so they sort of assumed protestant christianity was clearly the pinnacle of western civilization and everything else was somehow lesser or corrupted or derivative of this influx of different types of students says wait a second (laughs) some of your work was cool you weren't all (laughs) absolutely horrible but here's all these new perspectives, a new way of looking thing, and forces a re-examination of some previous topics. Uh, so it has, and, and universities have not quite yet adapted to the fact that most of their student body is self-funding at this point. Um, so it's still sort of based on the idea that you're going to be doing Uh, 50, 60 hours of work on your PhD, um, and because you won't be working outside the university. Whereas most of my colleagues and me, up until I got funding, um, was working full time. How else are you going to fund um, Hmm. if you don't have family money? Are you not? Uh, even if you're not super wealthy, if you can't live with your parents, as I mentioned before, my mother lives with me. <laughs> she lives with me. <laughs> there's, there's there's no way to like devote that much time, so it be, it makes a strain. It also sort of strains the university itself because people take a lot longer to complete. So there's all these economic factors, social factors that sort of influence the academy, it has then influenced the type of things that are studied, like hip-hop and religion. If you have a ho- whole lot more people of African descent uh, entering musicology schools or ethnomusicology or religion and saying, here's an interesting topic, no one has looked at this, like why can't we look at this instead of just the what's the usual, then eventually there's a bit of a response. It's new research, it's creative, it's innovative, and, like, no one else is doing it. Um, the knowledge that you do in the PhD, even though it's highly specific, is often viewed as a, say it's a spiral. So if I begin with the history of Christianity as an undergrad, it's very broad. I'm looking at foundational information at first, but I keep revisiting like a spiral the same topics over and over and um, complementing them and then enhancing uh, with my knowledge, and then specializing at the same time. So I particularly am looking at, um, uh, I'm writing an ethnography on the Church of Satan, and that would be my specialization. Once I complete the PhD, I'm a, you are considered, the PhD thesis, an expert in the topic of your dissertation. Like, this is, you're the expert. However, you're meant to go broader. Let me give you um, an example of my particular thesis, how, how the information I've gained over this past 12 years, uh, <laughs> relates to larger studies of human behavior. So I tend to look a lot on materiality of religion, its media, How re- because religion is always mediated via its books, music, bodies, ritual, and food. So the theories and method I used in my thesis I can use to analyze other areas. So American Thanksgiving is coming up. And if you look at the material aspect of this particular American religion, you can see how it builds American fervor. Thanksgiving isn't limited to race or religion, but the idea of American exceptionalism itself. So these types of ideas that I look at in my thesis can be applied to other areas that you study. And you can make those association quicker the more that you study it. Um, in the broad history of ideas, the more you learn, the more the threads of some complex tapestry you can trace back to an individual source. Magic, for example, the topic of magic, is greatly informed by Christianity, and it's informed by what Christianity claims it is not, and even if what it is not is constantly shifting. So, uh, you have this vague category of magic, quote-unquote, but what you're really studying is shifting notions of marginality and fringe, and how this fringe idea negotiates uh, what is considered mainstream. You're also studying the idea of how humans perceive, organize and interact with the world around them, whether that means uh, summoning demons in the ancient world to do your bidding or how these demons are a vehicle to explore secret and hidden ideas if you look at Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. There are themes of human behavior are, that are universal, love, hate, sex and power, that you're then breaking down into smaller categories and a very specific type of topics. So the academy of religion, like any other workplace, uh, you're also negotiating a large institution of frameworks. Who gets hired? Why? What kind of remuneration you get? Like who gets paid what? And why is it important? Uh, Office politics, particular people who may or may not like your particular research, even if you're a brilliant scholar. Uh, I know that some may look at my particular topic and just think that's too weird for them. More conservative schools would rarely, never hire me unless they have a a new chair who's into usurping the status quo a little bit, <laughs> and I might be their wild card hire. Otherwise, um, I would not be necessarily open to all environments. Other environments would be super open to it. They're more progressive school. They'd say, "Yeah, we love the idea of somebody studying the demonic or magic, and that's great. No one's doing it. You're welcome." So. You have to um, um, negotiate all these different things when you look at the academy and think about your particular career and how you market yourself as uh, a scholar. Governments are also invested in studying the social sciences because it helps them ostensibly to anticipate human behavior. And one particular example of this is I have a friend who's at Berkeley now. And she's studying medieval Sanskrit inscriptions in Indonesia. Okay, what The topic's the not hell? terribly important what is important is that because it's in Indonesia, a current Muslim country, the United States government gives massive bonuses to any type of research done in Muslim countries now because they are invested in, in knowing more about it. So even though she's yeah. doing medieval Sanskrit, the moment Berkeley said, you're accepted here and she, uh, she, accepts, uh, she accepts the admission and goes there, the school itself gets like a $20,000 bonus. Some of it is passed on to her, but it's an interesting way when you think about what gets studied, this is usually why. The governments usually have some sort of investment in what they are, in the ideas that they are um, um, funding, even if technically they cannot dictate your results. So no one is supposed to come and dictate your results. In the social sciences, that doesn't happen very often, but I am told that in the hard sciences, that's a a, uh, a bit more of a hard issue because it affects it affects policy. So if you're studying yeah. climate change, <laughs> you may have different lobbyists putting pressure for different types of results. In the social sciences, that doesn't happen as much. So I just wanted to um, like go on this spiel to talk a <laughs> little bit about, um, I was hoping uh, with my idea was that um, when people ask me, what is it you study and I say religion and they ask me if I'm going to be a nun um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to emphasize that really what I'm looking at is just one way to look at human behavior. Hmm. I'm a, a historian of ideas first and foremost. I happen to focus on the religious aspect. But uh, the true scholar, the good scholar, the skilled scholar, can take what they've learned and transfer it to other areas and, and is able to then um, broaden their perspective and look at human behavior in order to um, make not just, I don't mean like predictions necessarily, but in order to have a a, a richer, deeper understanding of human as a whole, via their very specific, focused, um, narrow topic.
0: Well, another fascinating episode. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Where can those listening reach out to you with their own questions, or to let you know what they're thinking online?
1: They can email me directly at zaftigworks, all one word, at gmail.com, lowercase. They can contact me on Facebook. There's an unorthodoxy with which zaftig Facebook page. There is also the blog, which will be Mm -hmm. updated after every segment with uh, sources and and listings for things that we have discussed. And it is uh, unorthodoxyblog.wordpress.com.
0: Well, I suggest everyone go check that out it is fascinating uh, thank you again which is after. Hey,
5: everyone I'm a dinner den if you ever get cold you can stand in the corner of a room they're generally 90 degrees or... You can listen to my segment, Militant Eroticism, at the end of every month on 9 Cents Podcast. I'll either piss you off or get your pelvis fruited. Either way, you'll be warm.
4: Ah.
0: Welcome to another Old Nick's Peep Show, the only segment that delivers beautiful women, masculine men, and intriguing information on all things Old Nick. Joining us as always is the very first Old Nick chick, which Marilyn Mansfield and her handsome man managing editor, Warlock Zoth
4: the Mog. How are both you today? We are very good, thank you.
0: Doing great as always, Adam. How are you? Hell yeah! No, I'm doing great. I'm a bit tired from pulling up carpet all weekend, but <laughs> oh, sucking fun, in
1: fun, Yeah,
0: decades of dust and and nastiness, oh. but uh, good times. I'm pretty sure I mentioned it earlier in the show, but I'm pretty sure someone died in my apartment or in my house. Oh, I mean, because there's like blood stains <laughs> on like the wood really? floor. It's like saturated. It's like a horror show. It's really bad. But um, we're not here to talk about blood and gore, unless, of course, it's on one of the beautiful women in Old Nick magazine. Let's. <laughs>
3: well, you know, the, we do have the Halloween issue out now, so there is plenty of blood in it. There
0: was. I was actually kind of uh, surprised. It was really nice, and I have to tell you, I don't, I don't know if it was planned this way or or what, but it seemed it was front loaded with a ton of beautiful women. Yeah, yep. it's, like, yep. it's always it seems planned like that way. Yeah, it was it was just a really really great issue. So, uh, any reactions to this issue? Uh, how did you guys feel about it once it was released and and you see all your hard work uh, come come to life? Oh, I mean, it was
4: we had a lot of great reactions and um, you know I did my my uh, interview with Mia Tyler was in there, yeah. so Mia was tweeting it and stuff, so. Um, she was yeah, really that came out really great. With, yeah, she was really happy with the interview. And a lot of people, uh, we got new um, old Nick fans now, you know. So. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, it was nice because it was nice to see a lot of her work. Yeah, um, yeah. And the interview was really really fantastic, too. Uh, it, yep. It's rough with, with these because you at least for me i have to like devote time okay i i'm just going to enjoy the women now and then i'm going to consume the content because there's it's like an over a sensory overload
1: yeah. in, in, with that,
0: these issues it, it's really tough for me but it did genuinely take me a long time to be able to parse out the different parts it's rough <laughs> i i really really dug the uh the halloween uh, the girls um it was the halloween wicked witches review yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's like butter for me. <laughs>
4: <Not> <laughs> People to be love the about Halloween it. issue, you know. The Halloween issue is always I mean, they're all great, but the yeah. Halloween issue is always a little special, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um uh, yeah, everyone seemed to love it. <laughs> yeah,
3: it's it's fun putting them together, you know. Mm. Yeah,
4: definitely. I,
3: I think we all love Halloween, so it's just like it's something yeah. that's so, so close to home for all of us. We're like, yeah, this is going to be a good one. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, uh, other than, I mean, of course, this is like a, you know, it's like one of your children almost, you know, you, you work and put so much time and energy into these issues and they come out. It's, it's hard to be able to say, well, I, I like this or that. But besides, uh, Marilyn, besides your, your interview, was there a, a favorite piece in this particular magazine or a, or a favorite feature? or?
4: I think um, I think Zoff had something that he was. What were you talking about last night? Something he really. Uh, oh, you you know I remember which one lot. we
3: liked. Actually, me and Marilyn both were, were when we were looking through the issue, we were both pleasantly surprised to see that uh, Julie Simone is a blonde in this mm-hmm, yeah. photo spread, and we were like, oh look at that, that's different. You know, it was it was cool, classy. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, sort of boudoir photos. Yeah. Um, she's very well known for her fetish photography, which is more like, you know, like leather S&M kind of things. And this one was like kind of like softer, more, you know, feminine and delicate. And we were just like, yeah, this is this is cool. I'm digging it. I'm digging it. We were both kind of like, you know, giving the little head nod there like, yeah, all
1: right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Hell yeah. Well, I mean, we we just finished the release of the Halloween issue uh, on the horizon we have a lot going on i mean we have the winter issue but i mean we're looking at a pretty big milestone for old nick magazine right yes
4: yes, yes. old nick is going to turn 10 years old next Man. year yep yep it was crazy. released 6606 so you know next yeah. year is 10 years
0: it's it's, it's really interesting. I, we, uh, in, in my professional life, we, we deal with a lot of uh, a- advertising and different magazine issues and newspaper issues uh, for a lot of different types of clients. And in a time when... There, you know, not too long ago, there was a fear that print was dead, like that it was in a major decline. But that you could, as Olding Magazine, not only uh, persist in, you know, creating issues, but thrive. It's a testament to the content of the magazine, I think. Thank you. To be able to just reach 10 years—that's a—that's a big deal, especially yeah. nowadays. Yeah. What do you think, uh, if you don't mind me asking? What are some of the keys that of, of success that that you guys have over some other magazines that just have fallen off the face of the planet or dramatically altered their content
4: i mean in my opinion you know and i know i've said this many times before but old neck is really a one-of-a-kind magazine you know it mm-hmm. has totally original content that you're not going to find anywhere else you know it has that that that, that Dark bend to it, you know, but it has nudity and it has articles and it just has a little bit of everything in there. But it's it's just so appealing to you know different um to different kinds of people and and mm-hmm. you know I mean whether whether you know whatever you're into or whatever there's something for everybody if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah,
0: no,
3: it does absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that that's something I would like to. Um chime in on as well that i feel that we have a a close connection with our readers we kind of think about all the different types of you know types of women that will appeal to our readers and that's i think that's kind of key to how we are able to last for so long is the fact that you know we don't just have a certain kind of girl in the magazine you know we we try to appeal to all different types and likes you know, mm-hmm. so in that aspect, I think that that's you know that that speaks for a lot of of our content is that you know we we offer a, a wide variety of of women and and you know content as well. You know, it's it's not just naked chicks in there. You know, we also have you know music and movies and books, reviews and articles and you know um, fiction and. Uh, yeah, you know, original uh, fiction. I, I mean, yeah. a lot well, of stuff.
0: I, I, there's a lot of, like, I don't know how many people really stop and think about it, but original fiction, original cartoons, um, the the dramatic... Whenever I traditionally, especially, you know, growing up as a young man, whenever I thought of, of like, adult magazines or, or gentlemen's magazines, nudie mags, there were, each brand of magazine had a specific... Type of, you know, thing that they went for. Uh, Playboy is a perfect example. They were, you know, very much had their niche of of type of girl. Y- you look at Hustler and Penthouse. They had their own certain areas that they excelled in. And then there was like just you know billions upon billions of fringe magazines that just focused on a specific fetish. And having the variety that Old Nick Magazine has is really really original. I mean, I, I, it's easy because. There's not a lot of magazines that are thriving nowadays to think that this is how it always was, but no, I mean, this is very different and and Old Nick Magazine needs to get that, uh, the props for doing it when no one else does. I mean, they sort of stick with their niche and they they just ride it out.
4: Yeah, yeah.
0: So I think that's a big, a big props to you guys. Um, But 10 years, 10 years, are you guys brainstorming? How are you going to celebrate that milestone at all? (laughs)
4: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, we're we're
0: course. already <laughs> talking about what we're
3: going to do. We were do. already having a meeting
4: yeah. about it. We were, you know, we were at Bob's and talking about it, and um, had yeah, this the brainstorming really cool, sessions uh,
3: definitely have begun. Yep,
4: really cool stuff in the works. Um, but you know, like we always say, if you want to advertise or whatever, you want to submit uh content for consideration. This is the issue that, yeah. to get in. Mm-hmm. to get to be in you know yeah. um so stop brainstorming now get in your ad space you know and um because it's coming out i mean well pargas and the 50th anniversary of the cos mm-hmm. and it's 10 year anniversary of old nick so this is the issue. Man, the trifecta
0: <laughs> of awesome is
4: yeah, what right, it is. Right, exactly, exactly.
1: I mean,
0: I, be, just because of the way that the, the uh, Church of Satan was founded, there's a little bit of confusion uh, among some where, you know, last, or not last year, but this, earlier this year, we celebrated year 50, but that's not the same as 50 years of existence and, and, and celebration for the Church of Satan. So there's, you know, this is a, a huge milestone fifty years in the Church of Satan, but also a decade of Old Nick magazine. Uh, I mean that's that's a huge deal. And then to celebrate it on essentially the birthday of the Church of Satan, having all three at once is just a fantastic, fantastic thing.
4: Yeah. I, I got I'm glad Magister you mentioned Johnson's
3: that you guys
0: book
3: what's that? Magister Johnson's book. The oh, Rising, right? Warlock,
4: will Satanic also
3: be coming out at that Warlock. time.
0: Right. That, right. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> that's going to be huge. That's going to be a big <laughs> yeah. fucking deal. I cannot wait for that. That's going to be... Oh, man. I'm going to have to uh, start shadowing you all because uh, I want to be around when, when that shit hits. Uh, <laughs> head, come to New York. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah come New to
4: New York.
0: Definitely. Well, um, so... It, I, I don't know. I, I mean, are you, you guys already said that you're... Considerations for content, and of course, there's always going to be some ad space. Um, so, I, I would you know impress upon people if you need to save up in order to get this issue. There's there's certain issues in the life cycle of magazines that you always want to be a part of because no matter where you are in time, those are going to resonate more than others. Uh, the founding issue is always a really big deal, uh, and then your anniversary issues are really big deals. So a, a Ten year anniversary. I mean, if you want to have whatever it is you're promoting uh, live in <laughs> in history, that you know, these are the issues you really need to get into. And if you can get content, original content that's yours into these issues, that's that's going to be fucking awesome for you. But um, girls, let's talk girls. I, I mean, are you going to have considerations for for new models in these?
4: Yeah, sure. We always have. Uh, you know, we, we're always looking for new models. Um, mm-hmm. So if you're willing, you know, if you want to model and you you um wanna submit some photos, you know, submit them, um, please be aware that I do not make the final decisions.
2: <laughs> which some people fault? tend
4: to think. <laughs> yeah. It is not up to me or Zoff. It is up to um the chairman mm-hmm. yeah. who, you know, <laughs> Magister Johnson makes that decision. Um so he makes the final decision, but you, you know, you have to, I mean, cause people contact me all the time on Facebook and things like that, uh, which is fine. And I direct them where to send the photos and stuff, but mm. I do not make the decisions. Yeah, I, I put in my input, of course, but um, I don't make the final decision. So,
0: <laughs> well, it's certainly something to to keep uh, in the front of your minds uh, for you know everyone out there. It's a big issue coming up. I don't want to short sell uh, the nature of the issue that we just had, the Halloween issue that just came out because it, I mean, it was really a wonderful issue. So, congratulations uh, to both of you for that, and it, pass it on to uh, Magister Johnson. He, you guys did a fantastic job. Oh, and, um, thank you. I mean, it's it's easy to get um, caught up in the cycle of, of issue to issue to issue but it's always nice, I think, especially on these episodes that where we get to speak after the release of the issue to really take a minute and absorb it. So, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where If you sit down and just say, you know what, for an hour, I'm going to devote myself to Old Nick Magazine. You're never going to come away disappointed. That's probably going to be the best hour you've spent all day. So (laughs) I I encourage everyone to do it. But the magazine isn't it. I mean, you can actually see Old Nick Magazine online as well. So can we tell the good listeners where they could find you guys online?
4: Yep. Um, Of course, oldnickmagazine.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at old
3: And we're also on Facebook and Twitter and Google Plus and Elo and Pinterest and MagCloud and Skin Mags and Triple X cams for you. <laughs> we have our store on Cafe Press. You know, those of you looking to give some gifts for the holidays, definitely go to oh, yeah. magazine.com click on yep. store it'll take you to cafe press you know we have t-shirts and hoodies and mugs tank tops and, and panties thongs and thongs <laughs> and, yeah, coffee mugs and shot glasses and drinking glasses whatever anything you could possibly think up we could put a old nick logo and it's a badass present for someone out there that you know that's a fan and a reader so Hell check yeah. it out
0: oh yeah Well, it's always such a treat talking with both of you. Thank you so much for joining me, and uh, I really uh, I I look forward to the next issue, and uh, I'm really excited about the anniversary issue coming up too. So thank you both for joining me.
4: Thank you for having us, as always.
3: Yes, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be on the show.
0: Uh, Yeah. Well, until we can chat again next month, maybe. Hail Hail Satan.
5: Hail Satan.
0: Hail Satan.
5: I am not a liberal nor a conservative. I'm not a Democrat, nor a Republican. I am not a socialist, nor a capitalist. I am not an authoritarian, and I'm definitely not fighting for your cause. I belong to no party, I support no politicians, I am loyal to no state, and your cause celebra means nothing to me. I am Darren Deicide, Agent Provocateur. Welcome to Agent Provocateur, I'm Darren Deicide. I had a topic planned, It was probably going to be another analysis sprinkled with sardonicism, another third side on an issue of global scale. A little something to ponder and laugh at while you sipped your morning coffee. I like the idea of a podcast show playing that role in people's lives, sort of the role radio played during its more golden years. Often these topics come to me very organically in my fascination with humanity and their strange social groupings. I'm going to have a moment of candor, if I may. I don't really like talking about my private life. There's an unhealthy obsession in America with celebrities or people that we regard as stars in one way or another. To me, that culture is a type of religion. Only the usual pantheon of gods that existed in polytheism have been replaced with personalities. Admiration is one thing. Worship is another. The line can be blurry. So I have this natural aversion to it all, a very gut instinctual one to it, much like in the same way your stomach might churn when a pile of puke is right in front of you. It makes me an admittedly bad radio star and an exceptionally bad public persona. I also don't like the format of podcasting, I must tell you. I don't want to be part of the droll static of punditry that saturates the airwaves yelling and screaming about some selected outrage, being dishonest about motivations, and engaging in ignorant demagoguery. I've addressed my principles and motivations before on this show. There's no use in repeating. So this leads to a lot of unconventional breaking of format. I goof off, I have fun with it, and I hope that in that process, I break away from these routines. But in actuality, anyone who knows me well in the real world knows that Whenever I discuss the subject of politics, I insist on doing so in a calm, reasonable way. Not everyone can do that. Actually, very few people can do that. Doing this segment has only exponentially exposed me to the sort of belligerent ignorance that is so pervasive amongst the masses. So I've narrowed down the people I discuss politics with to a very, very small group of people I consider highly intelligent, astute, and educated. The art of picking up my drink and casually walking away from a political discussion is one that I have sadly perfected. Nonetheless, people look for the fight. I don't oblige them. Nowhere is this phenomenon worse than in social media. Get ready for that obligatory parade of assholes after every incident that our mass media decides is the pivotal issue of our time, whipping the mules of their bandwagon down the same tired old trail. The worst of them are the vultures who just can't wait for the facts to be sorted out or a corpse to get warm before suggesting guilty parties or a course of action. Hey, you amateur politicians, leave the transparently emotional appeals to the professional liars, okay? If it hasn't been made clear from listening to the show... Realism and pragmatism are cornerstones of my worldview. In every hypothesis, suggestion, and idea I put forth here on Agent Provocateur, I weigh it against those two principles. And that's not easy in the field of politics. You can never entirely predict the future. At the most, you can study history, pair examples, and see patterns that may or may not hold true forever. Whatever the case may be, I don't make left-field assertions based on little other than idealisms. Unless I'm just having fun and being a smartass, but that's mostly entertainment value. But that means being stringent and studying history and journalism down to the details. Unlike those who don't spend any time questioning their world or themselves, facts and alternative points of view do matter to me. It's so much easier to yell about the things you don't like than to make an attempt at a deeper understanding of reality. I'm fairly certain that requires a temperance that is beyond most people's faculties. Whenever an American says something to the effect of, why would I ever go there, pointing at some society they view as austere, enigmatic, or inferior, I'm saddened by their willful ignorance. It's clear that there are a lot of ways to be human, all but the most ardent of solipsists wouldn't disagree with that. So yes, I had my topic planned, and then boom, splashing the headlines across every major press outlet, attack in Paris. I don't fancy myself someone who only reacts to mainstream concerns. Those of you who have followed my agent provocateur Newswire on Facebook should know this. I started doing that because I came to the realization that many people think I'm a wingnut, and to be honest, I can't blame them. If somebody says something that you've never heard before, your natural reaction is to ask, well, why would they say that? So an adjunct to my earliest episodes, I posted articles I cited. As news unfolded, I would sometimes add a new article about the changing events. Suddenly, I realized that some of you out there were really paying attention. I mean, really paying attention, and I was impressed. Let me emphasize some of you, because there were also a handful that I was underwhelmed by. But I started receiving emails, very well thought out emails, on subjects that I was tackling and the articles I was posting. But most striking were how many people wanted to see more. I was concerned that it was too much, especially when just posting articles counting the civilian death toll from American airstrikes. I mean, practically every day I was posting an article from the Lebanon Star or press TV about who was killed by American drones and planes. Ten today, five tomorrow, 20 the next. But apparently the fear that I was exhausting an audience was wrong. I got comments and emails from multiple people saying that they really enjoyed the research I was doing and wanted to see more of it. So the Newswire became my Frankenstein's monster. Truth is, it's part of my normal research on the world. See, I'll let you in on what I think is a little secret. If there's anything I learned from political science academia, it's that you don't have to be an expert to learn about this stuff. You just have to know where to look and put the time into it. Political scholars have just devoted themselves to that effort. Politics is not rocket science or quantum mechanics. It's mostly common sense and is happening around us all the time. And media is accessible to everybody. The problem is that some of it is more available and ubiquitous than others. So if you want another point of view... You have to put that effort into looking outside the tangled ideological web built by the mass media your society relies on. I would say that to everyone, including people who don't live in America. Russians should look at American media. Americans should look at Russian media. You'll never attack the fundamentals of your worldview until you disengage from your society's insularism. So, I don't fancy myself a contrarian, however, whenever this sort of attack happens in our world, it becomes the only point of discussion for months, even if similar attacks happen around the world on a near-daily basis. When I started this segment, I had a first episode that established some of my values and viewpoints, as well as how I was going to run this segment. But my second episode dove right into the issue of Syria. Which was then a situation just starting to boil. The episode was entitled "Syria: The Next Middle Eastern Shit Show" or "The Middle East. Let's call the whole thing off." In that episode, I examined what was about to become a serious civil war, one which America was clearly taking a side in. Looking at international reports, I warned of the mounting evidence that our support for the collapse of Syrian society. And the opposition movement to the ruling Baathist party was fueling a new Islamist movement that was gaining power in Syria and Iraq. I cited historical examples of why this would likely lead to a protracted war of attrition with an end game that served neither American nor Syrian. There was little doubt in my mind that America and its allies were about to be embroiled in something ugly, something that would lead to a serious death toll brutally haphazard methodologies, and unnecessary animosity. Recently, I did what was episode 24, entitled Yemen Terrorism, quote-unquote, and reversing the Magna Carta. It was an episode about dangerous double standards we were creating regarding extrajudicial killing and warfare. I lamented the loss of civilized values using the nasty covert war in Yemen as a case study. Further affirmations have come to light with the exposure of the drone papers, which were published by Glenn Greenwald's The Intercept. I haven't decided on whether or not to do an episode on this, but I encourage you all to take a look. Because of what evidence we now know is in the drone papers, we can say with even more confidence that the drone campaign is terroristic in nature. Episode 12. Saudi Arabia's free pass gets revoked examined how our unique support for the brutal, totalitarian home of Wahhabism, Saudi Arabia, was the source of much resentment, further exposing Western hypocrisy to Arabs and Muslims in the region. All the while I've been examining these issues, I've emphasized a concrete, realistic assessment. That war is not a one-way street. It is a nasty two-way street with many predictable consequences, the most obvious being the cycle of attack and retaliation. For many reasons, the Western herd does not put what we call terrorism into this frame. Instead, we distinguish it as some sort of unique phenomenon from warfare. The CIA calls it blowback. The mainstream press calls it terrorism. Everything is an anecdote removed from any contextual history. Sadly, dots are just drifting in space, with few actually drawing any connections. So I've made it clear from day one. My analysis of our participation in Syria, which I broadcasted now about two and a half years ago, has mostly come to fruition. Syria is in shambles, and jihadism is on the rise fueled by resentment towards a hypocritical state that will not apply its own professed standards to itself. AP reported on November 14th in an article entitled Syrian Passport at Paris Attack Scene Belonged to Asylum Seeker that, quote, a Syrian passport found by police at the scene of the mass shooting in a Paris concert hall belonged to an asylum seeker who registered on a Greek island in October a Greek minister said Saturday. French police said the document was found near the body of one of the attackers in the investigation into the main attack of Friday's carnage. In another AP article published on November 14, Loic Wheels, an eyewitness, said he heard the attacker say, what's happening to you is your fault. We are avenging our brothers in Syria. I would never portend that any of this is justification for unloading a semi-automatic weapon on civilians. As I argued in episode 24, Yemen, Terrorism, and Reversing the Magna Carta, killing without due process is an affront to many values we have defined as cornerstones to civilization. To abandon them is to advance to barbarism. There are no exceptions to this. If you think there are, look at your life. Look at the ways abandoning this age-old principle that people have unjustly died over could be used against you. I am speaking, I presume, to at least a mostly satanic sympathetic audience. Need I point to inquisitions, witch hunts, or any other countless incidents in history to convince you of the importance of this value, long established since the social contract of the Magna Carta. I point this out because this insularism that we are in as Americans is so often apparent when you just speak to the average person about these incidences. They're likely to know more about Raqqa Raqqa Ali than they are about Raqqa Syria. And yet they are, rightfully so, enraged at such criminality with no idea who or what to direct it towards other than the rhetorical. Allah is to blame. Well, why isn't Allah telling the other 1.57 billion Muslims to do the same? Apparently, it's a bit more complicated than that, but that's a difficult exercise, because that would require us to ask the question, is Allah to blame for extrajudicial killing that comes from our government? Answering that question makes America look in the mirror and draws a very uncomfortable parallel about the modes of thinking that go behind all states, Islamic or not. I couldn't emphasize this more to anyone who cares about the principle of justice. It is a disservice to the victim of any crime to bar inquiry into how or why they were victimized like i said i couldn't emphasize this more so i'm going to say it again it is a disservice to the victim of any crime to bar inquiry into how or why they were victimized Associated Press is perhaps one of the most main arteries of information distribution in America's mass media, generally used as a disseminator of articles all the way down to the local level. It's something I pay attention to mostly as a barometer on the American herd. But for substantial information, scholarship and history tell much more. The banal opinions of people are predictable and impossible to avoid, whether you're in this country or any other. What's surprising or challenging is not the almost scripted reactions of state departments. It's the views outside the adopted and presumed truisms. When I got the news of what happened in Paris, I was in a routine scan of AP, and it started right when I was packing my gear. I was off to play a show at Otto Shrunken Head in New York City, so keeping up with it hardly seemed like a possibility, though I was concerned what sort of high alert city would be on. Well, it was business as usual. Everything was happening without any change, as if the outrageousness of what happened only existed on another plane, the process of life continuing on outside of the human hysterias. And so the wheels on the bus, they go round and round. I'd like them to stop. I don't expect it. In fact, I expect the opposite. I expect those wheels to keep turning until something truly catastrophic happens. Maybe it'll be something that comes from us, the human animal. Maybe a situation like the one around the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we now know was inches away from total disaster, will be that tipping point and the species will nuke itself like a hungry man dinner. I wouldn't like that very much. Knowing the impractical short-sightedness of my fellow human is the reason I was wiped off the face of the earth is not very comforting. Maybe catastrophe will come in what biologists are calling the sixth extinction. Allow me to refer you to the book The Sixth Extinction in Unnatural History by Elizabeth Colbert. I might be able to live with that outcome more. I always root for nature and the self-correcting systems of the earth. If the archaeological record indicates anything from all the dead fossils that have been left behind, it's that nature knows best. So if this species renders itself parasitical to the earth, I look forward to it dusting us off like a felt brush on a nice hat. Then, as nature takes its hat and hangs it on the hat stand in preparation for the next romp, the next thing could come along and probably do a much better job than we ever did. I like that thought. But what I do know is that, whenever the case may be, it is always the crusader, no pun intended, the one who thinks they're doing everyone a favor by throwing their wood into the fire of hypocrisy that pushes us towards the former. The pragmatist in me wonders when these people might listen to the Pearl of wisdom given by Albert Einstein when he was quoted as saying, Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Reports are always coming in, and the situation continues to unfold, but the latest says that France is continuing its bombing of Syria. On November 15, AP reported that 20 bombs were dropped on Raqqa, which is now without water or power. Who knows how many might be dead? Who knows who they are? The wheels on the bus, they go round and round. But I stepped off that bus a long time ago. Why? Because I get the sense that the bus is heading for a cliff. Thank you for listening to Asian Provocateur. I want to especially thank those that have wrote all the kind and encouraging emails that I mentioned in this segment. Your sharp intellects combined with your inquisitiveness stimulate this cerebral cortex and are perhaps the reason I keep doing this. My newswire can be found at facebook.com slash agent provocateur on nine, the number nine cents. And the past episodes I mentioned can be found at number 9 podcast.com. Take care.
0: that's going to do it, people, for yet another episode. We hope you enjoyed it, and we would love to hear from you. My dog has been really loud this entire time, so I don't know if you've <laughs> heard that in the background. But I usually lock her out, but I accidentally locked her in with me, and so I've been enjoying the rattling of her freaking neck why is it that dogs have to wear so many damn little like tags I know
1: even my it's, cats wear them too so it's
0: insane yeah. just have one if you have to have any have one just put mm-hmm. everything you need on the one not 80 of them um, alright well anyway uh, we would love to hear from you visit the website 9 on <laughs> <laughs> tangent <laughs> oh yeah here's another thing I almost forgot <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt your stream of your segment because it was so mm-hmm. wonderful but I wanted just to scream Cthulhu for president I <laughs> just <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, uh, it's
0: it's coming up Why this time of year again. People,
1: the to <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: okay. Let us know what you want, uh, what you think. Uh, info at nine dot com. Any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments? Uh, you can always visit us on social media. We're in at Facebook, Google Plus, Twitter, and MySpace. Uh, we update weekly topics. We share other podcasts that maybe we uh, are featured on, and other projects that other Satanists are really excited about, or anything really uh, that we think is worth looking into. You can download the shows Monday via the RSS feeds found at 9 centspodcast.com We're also on FM Stitcher, and YouTube. So wherever you do find us, leave us a rating and comment. We don't respond to every, of them, every one of them, uh, but we appreciate every one of them. And if you'd like to learn more about Satanism or the Church of Satan, churchofsatan.com is the first place you should go, or you just uh, order the Satanic Bible or uh, Satanic Scriptures. They're also very wonderful places to start. And remember, the only way we're going to continue doing this is if you share it. So share it that's it just share it once again thank you for joining me as always I'm your host Adam Campbell being joined by
1: Witch's Zaptic.
0: the beautiful Witch's Aftic. thank you so much for joining me again
1: thank
0: you <laughs> until next week people <laughs> hail Satan
1: hail Satan